Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Hey, America um, has an outrage problem. Uh, I want to listen. I want you to listen to a rather lengthy quote right from the get-go from uh, a guy named Scott Sauls. He wrote a book called A Gentle Answer. Uh, this is what he has to say in the introduction. Quote, in our current cultural moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. Outrage undergirds every day's breaking news. It is part of the air that we breathe, a native language, a sick helping of emotional food and drink to satisfy our hunger for taking offense, shaming, and punishing. Outrage has become something we can't get away from, partly because we don't seem to want to get away from it. Instead of getting rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, as Scripture urges us to do, we form communities around our irritations and our hatreds. Tribes and echo chambers form, social media feeds grow, political pontifications multiply, book deals prosper, podcasts rant, and churches split. On some level, we are all engaged in the seemingly insatiable, ubiquitous theme of us against them. He goes on to say this, and for the more popular voices among us, this also can become a great way to build a platform, gain followers and fans, and earn some cash. Outrage sells. For our generation, hate has been commodified. It has been turned into an asset, end quote. Whoa, we're coming out hot, right? <laughs> we're in a series of teachings uh, that are trying to encourage us and help us of how do we resist outrage? How do we as Christians kind of flow against the cultural norm of this kind of rage and this outrage? And so last week, um, actually, let me say right up front, this was supposed to be a two-week series. Uh, I'm going to make it three, okay? I've got a little bit more to say on this topic after I planned this message, so uh, we'll finish up a couple weeks um, from today. So, um, so last week what we did is we looked at the story of Philip and Nathaniel, these two friends who came to see the world in very different ways despite having similar backgrounds, and if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, but from this story, we, listened, we, we learned two things primarily. First, we learned the necessity of exploring new ground together and in community with one another, uh, which is to say that each generation of Christians has to figure out what it looks like and what it means to follow Christ in their time. And this, of course, will mean that generations will critique one another and seek to correct right? And this is a lot of times what you have. A lot of times th these divides in the church 
if you look carefully, can sometimes happen along generational lines. And it's because as each generation is kind of working to figure out what it means to follow Christ in their time and in the world and as they see it and the world they find themselves in, they often critique and then seek to correct. And that's okay. In fact, that's necessary. But we've got to learn how to do this across generational lines and in community with one another. And let me say this. Younger generations must learn to be gracious and realize that the generations before them were doing the best that they knew how with the information they had and the culture that surrounded them. Younger generations must show grace with that realization. Older generations must also be gracious and allow generations after them to take leadership when it is time and not feel as though that everything they have worked so hard for is lost. And so grace, hospitality, patience is required from each generation as we seek to correct and as, and as we seek to critique and, and all working toward the goal of what does it mean to be faithful in our time and in our place. Amen. So that's the first thing we learned. It's necessary to explore new ground together. The second thing we learned last week, uh, and this is the primary thing that we tried to learn, is that uh, God deals very gently and patiently with us. Uh, you remember Nathaniel's story. Nathaniel was the cynical one. He was quick uh, to, to scoff and make a, a, an offhanded remark about how nothing good can come out of Nazareth. He even told Jesus once Jesus was kind of making comments about Nathaniel. Nathaniel said, look, Jesus, you don't know me, Right? And yet, in the midst of that cynicism, Jesus speaks gently into his life, speaks to the best parts of who Nathaniel is, and it absolutely changed Nathaniel's life. And so what we learned is that if we are to resist the rage that is so common and prevalent in our culture, we must first recognize how gently and patiently God works with us, for all of us are on a spiritual journey, and certainly at different points along that journey. So we must recognize how gently and patiently God deals with us. But following right after that, though, is that we then, and that's what I want to talk about today and, and the next time, is that we then are called to extend that same kind of gentleness and patience to others. We are called to extend that same kind of gentleness and patience to others. Key to the Christian witness in the world today, in this time, and in our cultural moment, is to resist rage and not add to the collective sense of angst and anger. Key to the Christian witness in our age and in our cultural moment is to resist rage and not add to the collective sense of angst and anger. Imagine a church that is focused on peacemaking instead of culture wars, focused on living truth, not just defending it, seeking forgiveness for our own sins rather than being so busy of calling out sins wherever we see it. Amen. I knew the amens would be hushed there, but we can work on it, okay? So in other words, let me say this, and I'm coming out, I'm coming out hot today, so <laughs> it's going to start hot and then cool down, I promise. Um, but, but every time the church holds 
views that are shaped by cable news more than scripture, or has every time the church has a critical spirit against the world and launches culture wars, or fails to control impulsive posts on social media, we collectively as the people of God are contributing to the rage around us rather than fulfilling our calling from God to be a shelter from the storm and a place where people can come to encounter the loving patience of the God that we serve. Amen. So, we have been given this high calling, right? We've been given this high calling of resisting rage in our world. And my, my main point today is that in order to do so, we must resist the spirit of the Pharisee and be filled with the Holy Spirit. If we are going to live into this high calling of ours to be a shelter from the storm and resist rage around us, we must resist the spirit of the Pharisee inside of us and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to spend the rest of our time explaining what I mean. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Uh, I want to read the first 15 verses. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. I believe it will also be up on the screens for you as well. It says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flactories broad and their fringes long. This is a reference. I know some of you are like, what does that mean? This is a reference to a prayer box that would be carried around that had decorations, and they would over-decorate their prayer box and then carry it around as a way of saying, look at, as a way of putting their religious faith on display. Okay, that's what that means. Uh, we can get that uh, clear, cleared up. So, uh, verse 6 then, they love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all students and call no one your father on earth for you have but one father, the one who is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah. For the greatest among you will be your servant, and all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of God. For you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert and then you make your new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <laughs> now, Jesus deals so patiently and graciously with us, with endless hospitality, with one exception. Regularly throughout the New Testament, Jesus is really pretty harsh towards scribes and Pharisees. 
So let's just take another scan over the passage that we just read. Jesus says this about scribes and Pharisees. One, they sit on Moses' seat. Now this is a Jewish idiom, meaning that they are teachers of the Scripture. So he says, they sit on Moses' seat, and you should do what they teach. So far, so good, right? Then it starts going downhill, okay? But number two, don't do what they do. Number three, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on other people's shoulders that they're not willing to do. Number four, they do what they do just in order to be noticed and get attention. Number five, they demand the place of honor at dinner parties, and they want the best seat at church, which is the back row. Everyone knows that. Number six, they lock people out of the kingdom of God. Number seven, when people are headed in the direction toward the kingdom of God, the scribes and the Pharisees get in the way and block them and stop them from entering into the kingdom life. And then number eight, they go to all ends of the earth to reach a new convert, but their process of discipleship makes that convert a child of hell. Whoa, right? This is pretty harsh stuff. I mean, who in the world are these scribes and these Pharisees? Now, some of you Bible students already know the answer to this question, but let's go over it. Who are these scribes and Pharisees? Now, the scribes were a group of scholars who, like professional theologians, interpreted the scriptures for the people. That is, they studied the Jewish Bible, or what we know as the first five books of our Bible, and they sought to determine the meaning of the stories and passages within, that, within the scriptures. Okay, That's the scribes, interpreters of scripture. Now, the Pharisees were a little bit different, similar, but they had a little different role, a little bit of nuance. What they did is they took that and then, like ministers, shepherded the people and helped put those scriptures into practice. So the, so the scribes interpreted the scriptures, and then the Pharisees built a code of ethics around that or based on those interpretations. In short, church, scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders. And this is how Jesus is talking to them and about them. This should make all of us, but especially me, a little nervous, right? Just a little bit like antsy in our seats. So clearly, by the time that Jesus is saying these words, something had gone wrong. The scribes and the Pharisees had clearly lost their way. Because remember, scribes and Pharisees, theologians, interpreters, building a code of ethics, ministers, how does this work out? How does this play out in our lives? How do we understand how these scriptures are to impact us? And yet, this is what Jesus says to them. And so, essentially what their role is, is to study the scriptures and then determine the heart of God in order to lead people toward God's loving character. However, instead of allowing themselves to be formed and shaped by their study of the Scripture, they presumed themselves to be superior to others based on their study and their knowledge. In other words, rather than sort of being managed by or 
sitting under the authority of the Scriptures, they took authority over the Scriptures and saw themselves as superior ones who were just sort of like trying to like see how it plays out. Does that make sense? So they, they were studying the Scriptures but not under the authority of the Scriptures themselves. They saw themselves as superior based on their, their, their study and their knowledge. In other words, they really believed the idiom, knowledge is power. And so based on my knowledge of the scriptures, they saw themselves as having more power, as having more worth, as being superior. In other words, they used the scriptural text to hold power over other people and to elevate themselves. And this is precisely why time and time again in the New Testament scriptures, Jesus calls them out because Jesus refuses to put up with such Religious pride. Religious pride. That is the key phrase for this morning. Jesus refuses to put up with that level or any religious pride. He exposes and confronts this attitude as decidedly anti-Christ, right? What are we to make of the, the discipleship process of the Pharisees makes converts into children of hell? What are we supposed to make of that? Well, we, we, could, we could make it scary and dress somebody in a red suit, right? And that would be one way of handling that. Or we could simply say that, that there is this sense in which th- there's this anti-Christ nature to it all. That if you, are, if you are propelling yourself or making yourself better than someone else, then that is this, this, this religious pride that is decidedly anti-Christ. And so the challenge for us is to discern how is that Pharisee spirit alive in us personally or alive in the church corporately? Because Jesus refuses to deal with such things. He says this simply cannot be. This religious pride cannot stand. It is decidedly anti-Christ. And while it may have this veneer of working in favor of what God is up to in the world, it is actually the exact opposite and working against the purposes of God in the world. Okay, so let's do a little short exploration here. Okay? First, we, we are living with the spirit of the Pharisee if we are focused on vanity. We are living with the spirit of the Pharisee if we are focused on vanity. Vanity is preoccupied with appearances, needing the spotlight and approval of the crowd. And here it is, the vain is more worried, or the vain are more worried about being admired than being admirable. The vain are more worried about being admired than actually being admirable, okay? That's vanity. And Jesus, as we look at his life, his ministry, his witness, Jesus is not at all worried about appearances. Can I take this opportunity to remind us, church, that Jesus regularly hung out with the wrong crowd? He spent time with those of poor reputation. In fact, Jesus developed a relationship with those so much that he was thought to be associated with them, even one of them. 
And so there were accusations flying toward Jesus of being one of ill repute, one of poor reputation. And Jesus didn't care. Maybe that was the whole point. Maybe that was the whole point, that while the religious leaders were flaunting their holiness as a way of protecting or safeguarding their reputation with their flactories, right, and prayer boxes, they were trying to flaunt their holiness in order to protect and safeguard their reputation, while Jesus, the Holy One, wasn't worried about reputation at all. Perhaps another way of thinking about vanity is this. Vanity is being overly concerned with reputation. Now, there is some space and there's some nuance here about, like, we want, to, we want people to think well of ourselves. We want to be people of good character and integrity so that people will think well of us. But when we focus purely on reputation, when we overly focus on this, when we're so concerned just about how is this going to look, we, when we're focused on just being admired versus actually being admirable, then maybe we have gotten lost in vanity. I want to do something this morning that we don't usually do, and that is to take just a couple of, of moments of silence in the middle of the message to kind of reflect on what's just been said or offered. And so let's take just a moment of, uh, to consider how we might be personally showing or demonstrating a sort of religious pride through vanity. Is there anything in our own lives? And then after just a brief moment of that, let's then move toward, is there anything collectively that you see or notice in the collective life of the church, the capital C church? It could be this, as specific as Emmaus Road. It could be our denomination. It could be just the general capital C church. And is there anything that you see collectively that we might need to repent of uh, together? And so let's just take a few moments here, and it won't be long, I promise, but take a few moments just to consider how we might be lost with religious vanity. Let's take a moment here. Gracious God, who deals with us patiently and with grace, we confess to you today that oftentimes we are way too focused on appearances. We confess today that on the forefront of our minds is not what is the right thing, but what will people think. And God, we, we know this to be true of ourselves, but God, we also recognize that there are ways in which the church collectively has lost our way, that we have participated in religious pride expressed through vanity, seeking to be impressive over being faithful. God, forgive us, and Holy Spirit, guide us into right paths, we pray. Amen.
Now, the second kind of Pharisee spirit, or the way, second way that a Pharisee spirit is expressed is in conceit, or being conceited. While vanity seeks approval of the crowd and tries to keep up appearances, conceit believes itself to be better than others. Uh, Baylor University professor Paul Sands defines conceit as this, quote, an exaggerated opinion of one's virtues and accomplishments, end quote. <laughs> an exaggerated opinion of one's virtues and accomplishments. And I think conceit is really just best demonstrated rather than talked about. And so conceit can be found in the academic who diminishes a colleague's contributions by pointing out their lack of common sense. Conceit is found in a musician who puts down another artist's work by saying their music is too popular to be taken seriously. It's found in the conservative who thinks they are way too faithful to be swept away by their progress, like their progressive family members. And it's found in the progressive who can't believe their conservative friends still think that way. Conceit is found in the Pharisee who, in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, actually prayed, quote, God, I thank you I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, end quote. Can you imagine a prayer like that? Clearly, the Pharisees had lost their way. If when praying publicly, say, God, thank you that I am not like these people, right? That's crazy. That is conceit. And so again, um, before we take another moment to consider how our lives might be conceited, both collectively and personally, I want to offer an example of how sometimes collectively the capital C Church can demonstrate religious pride through conceit, and it is this. If we belong to a tradition and believe that our small tradition or tribe within Christianity perfectly expresses and sums up more than 2,000 years of global Christianity and that its teachings are, and, uh, and that the teaching of every other tradition isn't right like we are, then there's a pretty good chance we are conceited. There's a pretty good chance that the, the denomination or tribe or tradition as a whole has become conceited if from the highest levels of leadership there is a putting down of other traditions because they're not as right as we are. Now, let me add a little bit of nuance here. It's not wrong or bad to belong to a tradition or a tribe. In fact, I would say it's a good thing. And so I would say belong to a tribe and a tradition that most resonates with, with where you are in belief and practices of faith. That is good and that is fine. But don't ever think that that one tribe has everything worked out or can't improve or can't learn from other tribes. Because as soon as you close that, that bubble, you have become conceited, okay? I said it was going to cool down a little bit, but then it heated up, didn't it? It heated up just right here toward the end, and then it's going to cool down again. <laughs> 
And so again, let's, let's uh, practice this. Let's take a moment, just a short moment, to think about, to pray about how maybe the church collectively, uh, maybe we ourselves, have been given over to the religious pride expressed as conceit. Creator God, who called the earth and all that is in it into being, and who owns all rights and privileges, and yet humbled yourself to take on the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death. We first pause to give you thanks that you have demonstrated for us what it means to live faithfully in this world and to be truly and fully human. And yet we confess that we fall short in the ways in which we see ourselves as more valuable and superior to others based on what we own or what we know or who we know, and we just create all these classes and these groups that, that would separate us one from another. And so, God, today, give us a sense of just our shared humanity with one another. Protect us from being conceited, this nasty form of religious pride. And God, help us as we belong to a tribe, a tradition called the Church of the Nazarene at Emmaus Road. Lord, we are thankful for it, and we give you thanks and praise. And yet, May we not make the mistake of feeling like that the Church of the Nazarene is perfect or has perfectly expressed the 2,000-year rich history of Christianity. Lord, may we learn from other traditions and tribes and denominations. May we have a humble posture, ready to learn and to explore together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus actually offers us great wisdom toward, uh, like, at one of the breaks or hinges in this passage, one of the transitions. It's found in verse 11 and 12, where Jesus says, The greatest among you will be your servant. Uh, which is not to say, which is to say, uh, you could take this one of two ways, right? Uh, the greatest among you, that one who has the highest stature or whatever, will be made low and made to be a servant. You could take it that way. Or you could also say that the one who is taking on the posture of a servant or the one who is dirt doing the serving is actually the greatest among you. You can take it either way. I prefer the second, right? It's this way of pointing out that, that in fact, when we take this posture of humility, that's when we are actually being great, okay? Uh, and, And so then he goes on to say, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted, okay? That's a really powerful verse, but some people hear this verse, and they try to play a game. 
uh, that I like to call exaltation manipulation. Just rolls right off the tongue, okay? It's a pretty fun game. Just kidding, it's not fun. But this little game called exaltation manipulation, that is, they try to play humble pie in order to be exalted. It doesn't work like that right? If you are trying to be humble for the end goal of being, being brought high, then you're just the same as trying to elevate yourself above others, right? The, the point that Jesus is making is that those who are truly humble, those with authentic humility, those are the ones who will be raised up. But you can't, this can't be manipulated. You can't make a game out of this, and so you can't manipulate, manipulate your way into humility. It must be the work of the Holy Spirit that rids us of our religious pride and allows us to look kindly on others. And so the pride-filled postures of vanity and conceit will only lead us into more outrage. Some of you are like, what does this have to do with outrage? Well, if we are... If we are vain and conceited, then it will lead us into more outrage. Because if you are conceited, seeing yourself as better than others, then you make enemy of the others, right? And so it will only lead us into more outrage. Instead, we must let go of these attitudes and allow the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us. And the work of the Holy Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Look carefully at this list. Patience with others and myself. Gentleness with those who are on the same journey as me and also with myself. Self-control and if you look in the Greek, it says, especially on social media. It's there, I promise. That one was pretty under the radar, yeah? Okay. So let me, let me close by saying this. If we are to resist rage and allow ourselves to be a shelter from the storm, we must allow the Spirit of God to remove any Pharisee tendencies in us. We must free ourselves from religious pride and practice a sweet humility of spirit. And may our prayer be, God, would you help us? Amen? Amen. Let me say a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this time, again, that we've been able to spend together. Thank you that you have spoken to us through this passage of Scripture that really is, is so harsh toward the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet, if we're listening, it will also make us uncomfortable. And so, God, May your Holy Spirit convict where necessary, uh, make us uncomfortable that we might uh, repent of any wrongdoing and seek to follow you. Lord, give us courage to be obedient to what you might stir in our hearts today. And be with us now as we gather around the Lord's table. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.